Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, Lambda, the Google AI engineer, Blake Lemoyne, claims to be sentient, was introduced by CEO Sundar Pichai at Google I.O. in 2021. Lambda stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, And it was trained on 1.56 trillion words worth of content using a transformer model, actually similar to those that we discussed a few weeks back on the show with Chandra Katri from Got It AI. Go ahead and look that one up. I'll put it in the show notes. Lambda is not even Google's most sophisticated AI. That distinction goes to Palm, which can also do math and generate code. We may not agree on what it means to be sentient, but everyone familiar with the limitations of Lambda agrees it's far from being a generalized AI, even if it might be able to pass the famed Turing test. Now, shifting to this week's conversation, data wrangling usually requires SQL skills, pipelines, integrations, schema mapping, and that's before starting the real work of figuring out questions to ask your data. We've talked to data experts in the past, like Derek Steer from Mode, Bar Moses from Monte Carlo, and Peter Fishman from Mozart about new approaches that will make all of these tasks easier. Well, today we get a treat. We're going to discuss the future of data with another expert who developed a new way to structure data that's better aligned with how teams actually use it. Ahmed Al-Samadisi built the data infrastructure at WeWork before realizing every company could benefit from his team's innovation. Traditional star schemas really are not the best way to manage data. Ahmed instead pioneered a whole new approach using a single table column model, better suited for typical questions data teams asked. He launched Narrator in 2017 to make it easier to turn data questions into answers. And has since raised $6.2 million from some great investors like Initialized Capital, Flybridge Capital Partners, and Y Combinator. Ahmed received his BS in robotics from Cornell. And uh, without further ado, Ahmed, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by uh, having you share maybe a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into the space. Awesome. Thank you, Dan, for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So I started my career in robotics. I was really obsessed with how people think is really what ended up happening. And throughout my career, I've been just, that obsession has just taken many forms. So in 2010, I had a self-driving car in Cornell uh, that competed with DARPA Urban Challenge, if you're familiar with it, that's where all these self-driving cars came from. Then made my way to doing human-robot interaction, eventually uh, continued in AI with AI for missile defense. Uh, So I did, that's like my fun fact, if a nuclear missile hits America, today's some of the tactical algorithms to track and discriminate it, I wrote them. So I continued down the world of AI, and I realized a couple of things interesting about AI Uh, in general. I'm in the world of AI, I'm like a very big Bayesianist, for the people who know what a Bayesianist versus a frequentist is. I'm like very heavy in like Bayesian mathematics. Uh, My specialty was multivariate uh, Gaussian data fusion, so like very subset of a subset. So I realized that when I, um, we can do all this really interesting stuff with AI and we can make decisions. And then I joined the startup world to work with companies and it looked very different. There are some companies uh, leveraging AI to make better decisions. And I think like Uber and Netflix, those are part of the engineering. But when you look at the data teams in those companies, they're very, they're struggling just to answer basic questions. Like how many people viewed our app, like even Google, like how many users do we have that use Google Docs are all very hard data questions to answer. And understanding why those questions are hard was my kind of journey at WeWork. So going through and diving into understanding how data works, why does it exist the way it exists today? Why does it suck? 
I decided to realize that it wasn't really working. And I went on a tour with like Netflix, Apple, talked to so many different companies to be like, how do you solve data problems like this? And it turns out that everyone was just like, that's the job. Like the job is that power through SQL to figure out how to make these things work. Like you can't, that's not the problem. That's the job. And that's kind of what led me to think of a different way of doing data. And so I ended up starting Narrator with one premise. We're going to build a universal data model. We call it the activity schema. It's one 11 column table. That's the same table for every company in the world. When we show that we can answer any question you have using that one table, even better, we can go further where because of the consistent standardized data structure, we can build analyses to be copied and pasted from one company to another, which we show. And even then, when you see kind of the output of what we deliver, when you ask a question in narrator, um, our biggest feedback is who wrote this? Like, this looks like it was written for me. And it's like, no, it's a series of computers and machines working together in such a seamless way that you can't even differentiate which part was like, where does it start and stop? And I think that's kind of the world that I'm excited for creating. It's the kind of world that I'm excited to share. And that's what I do every day today is just kind of help people make better decisions with data. So we're only publishing the audio, but uh, for listeners, uh, you got to see just how Ahmed lights up when he talks about this stuff. If ever there was a real data geek, I'm talking to him right now. And uh, just amazing. So let's unpack that. So let's start with, uh, talk us through a typical customer, how do they use Narrator? We have big media companies from like, E-commerce, let's use e-commerce, actually big, simpler example. And let's take a simple question that I think a lot of people might have is they have their attribution model and they want to understand how their emails are working. Uh, or they might want to know what the best paywall uh, to get someone to sign up. Or they want to just understand, like kind of do customers who actually submit a ticket view their FAQ site. All these questions I gave you are really hard data questions. Now for the data audience, they know exactly why these are really hard questions. One is because they're in different systems. When you tie an email to an order, how do you tie them together? Today, there's a lot of hacked ways of doing it with like you shove UTM parameters and then you try to join with a window and hope the UTM parameters are the same. And you try to like kind of stitch it together with a lot of copied data in every system. With Narrator, you can kind of do it the way you naturally think about it, which is in time. So you go through, you can just kind of take this single journey of a of your of everything every customer happening in your business and kind of pivot it in the way that you need in table that you need so a customer might ask that question give me every single email and let me know that that email directly led to conversion in three clicks they can get that data prepared for what they need to answer narrator handles all the complex joining with our innovative relationships so we use a temporal way of relating data versus trying to be explicit and then you can instantly evaluate any hypothesis, like what's the best campaign with one button and narrator will generate an entire story with a clear recommendation, understand the data, check for state, uh, uh, consistency, understand your trend, really break down your data. As I mentioned, as a Bayesianist, everything is happening in time and narrator behaves the same way. So we understand how your customer is behaving. And as your customer changes, some things might no longer be actionable. Some things might become opposite. Some things might be Reacting narrative will react to that email you and keep you in the loop and continue updating this analysis that you can read. And if you ever read one of our analysis or have seen me uh, do any demo live, I ask the audience to ask me any question and then I answer it live. Uh, I've done this with many conferences to show you that any question can be answered. But the even better part is the entire analysis that you get reads like a senior data scientist wrote it. It gives you all the data, conclusions, interprets it in English, and it uses the plots and the data as supporting evidence. So the experience you're having is something that you're often we like to talk about, which is like a human robot interaction. You are, as a human, are thinking of the question and just as fast as you can think about it or think about the follow-up, you communicate it using our portal to a uh, narrator and narrator structures that data and then instantly can interpret it and analyze that data for you. So you and I were talking before we started recording and you said, you know, beware, I've got some contrarian opinions. I said, oh, that's great. Well, one of them must have been the insight that led to you thinking that the star schema, which has been around dog years, is somehow inefficient or obsolete. Talk us through just the genesis of that insight. Yeah. So you've talked to so many people uh, in, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and you've talked to people that talk about lineage, observability, analytics, data dictionaries, uh, all these kind of things. So the data space is pretty big. And my contrary opinion is that all that should, will be, will go away. Like all that will die. Like even actually most warehouses will become interchangeable 
So I actually think that most of the space today is just noise. So let's talk about why. Let's talk about how we, why I can, why I'm making this claim. Warehouses have gotten to a point where they're relatively the same. Like I think people like to think Snowflake is significantly better than BigQuery, than Redshift. They've all kind of standardized around the same thing, even using the same Lambda uh, way of compressing computing data. So that everyone is now splitting computing storage. Everyone is doing the same uh, serverless approach. Data modeling, which we're going to talk about is key, is really terrible. So star schema is the idea of building tables that kind of have facts and dimensions. So something you're trying to measure and something and ways to slice it. And you join these tables so you can create the data marts that are used to answer the specific questions. The challenge with this approach is that it makes one assumption, which was the case in like 1950, but is not the case today, which is that all data can be connected. The this when, the, when data first started, you were using relational databases and it was only one, like every company had one database. And therefore everything was very explicitly joined. So it made sense to build these fact dimension tables because everything can join the data. In today's age, that doesn't exist. No company, even on day one, has one data source. They actually have 30. You have your Zendesk managing your tickets and you have your Salesforce and you have your email client and you have your web tracking, you have your internal database. And none of these systems inherently connect to each other. You can't tie a ticket to an order or a ticket to a churn. So therefore you can't really join them, which makes this fundamental table problem like the star schema, it fails. So what we do is we take that star schema and we shove a thousands and thousands of lines of SQL to create tables that are like orders with emails, order with session data, order by UTM. And we kind of try to like shove that into data. And because that process is so complicated, you end up needing like data lineage because it's not just one table and just one SQL query. It's actually a thousand SQL queries in a row. So you need a way to track the lineage of the data because it gets so pipelined. You need ways to manage those queries because they get so big and so complex that you need a DBT to manage it. Because there's so many tables and all these things are updating, you need observability. So you might use a Monte Carlo to see what's out of date and what's not out of date. You might, you have so many different tables that you need a data dictionary to tell you what, what's in each table. And then you take all that and you put it in a SQL semantic layer, like a looker or a Tableau MQ so that people can visualize the data. And every time they have a new question, they go back to your specialized analytics engineers, which is a job that is created now to create these queries, to put this table so that you can answer it. That's absolutely bonkers that we have this process. Let's imagine a world where you have one standard schema, which is narrator. You have your data. And instead of representing the data as like for preparing the data, you just define each concept. We call those concepts activities. Think about it as a journey. Customer opens an email. Customer submits a ticket. Customer orders. Narrator does all the identity stitching. It cleans up data and puts it in one table organized. And every time you have a question, you pretty much pull the data you want from that one table and arrange it in the way you want it to answer the question, and you're done. That's it. Because there's one table, there's no lineage, there's no dictionaries, there's nothing you need. Because there's one table that everyone's assembling it based on kind of that temporal way, which is similar to the way we speak, you don't need specific data engineers to answer questions. You don't need analytics engineers to exist. The table is such one table, you don't need a whole system to track lineage. Lineage is data to one table to your answer, nothing else. And what we see there is this works as long as you have you can meet two assumptions. That one table can represent all data that you need to represent. And as a Bayesianist and having done algorithms, I can tell you that a time series table can represent everything you ever need, like most systems in the world are based on that. Two, that, that one table can answer any question. And I've proven that by millions of examples, but by fundamentally, Every question you ever have, you're always, you have to ask it in English or in whatever language you need to use. And to do that, you have to describe it as a noun and a verb, and you're describing as something happening in time. Because you can describe it as an entity doing an action and changing in time, it means it can be, if our tool is flexible enough, which it is, it can be represented as data for you. And that's what we do. So it, this one table, the activity schema does represent all data. It allows you to answer it. And because of how simple it is, it actually makes all these additional layers not needed. And because we can instantly generate analysis and generate these reports as stories, you don't need to build thousands of dashboards that no one looks at. And because the whole thing happens in an abstracted layer, we can actually swap out. We've seen customers swap from Redshift to Snowflake, from Snowflake to BigQuery without ever changing any downstream effect. So it ends up being this world where like warehouses become commoditized. So much of these hundreds of tools are not needed because they only make sense when you have thousands of tables to manage. And then the time and the cost saving, you save so much money in your warehouse 
we just we're about to deploy, uh, publish a study that explains that you can save like 90% of the warehouse cost. You don't need a lot of specialized people writing SQL queries. You can enable more people to answer questions and the time to answer a question and time to answer follow-up question to be exact goes down to minutes. We've seen that with like a case study with Code Academy, like uh, Code, uh, Code Academy is used for people to learn software. They decrease their SLA from seven weeks. That's how long it takes them to answer a question. Seven weeks down to one day with narrator. So that's kind of the hot take I have. It's like all these data tools, which is a trillion that worth trillions of dollars worth of entity in time all go away once you add standardization. And what's even better is that this has happened in multiple industries in the past. So we're talking about how to store and access data. To me, every data problem ultimately comes back to data hygiene. So what's your take on the importance or how do you coach customers to first improve their data hygiene so that it can be used effectively in a schema like Narrator? So let's dive into that. This is the big data cleaning problem. So how, what is data cleaning and what is data hygiene? Because I think a lot of people like to think about these things in various ways. So it's like the whole idea of unstructured data. Like most data is structured. Unless you're a big company dealing with like hand printouts, like, and those are specific companies, you have structured data. If you're using Salesforce, if you're using any sort of data, any sort of system, your data is relatively like validated. Like you're not going to have a column that's an FL in Florida. Like data is relatively clean. Data hygiene, I think, comes into that with like duplicate leads, for example. Like that's very common. Every company in the world has duplicate leads. So when I think about data cleaning and data hygiene, I like to think about where it is. If it's like uh, when you're defining the building blocks as concepts, often it's a perfect time to clean up that concept and validate it. So when we build our activities, what we call them, let's say you want to create a submitted ticket, it's a good time to check for duplication. It's a good time to clean up the data as you bring it in. It's okay for data to be shitty in the source because as you bring it into the defined concept now, that's when you clean it up. Second thing that's important to realize, you're, we talked about narrator helping you use the data. It has to be able to handle a certain amount of messiness in the data. For example, one of the things we hear so often, people love whenever they use narrator, you can always use words like first and last. Give me the first lead that every company's, every person submitted. Why? Because they know they're going to have duplicate leads. And just by saying, give me the first one, I just deduped my leads and I can use that to answer any question. And it's small stuff like that in deduping data is what makes it really a lot of value. So I like to think about data cleanliness as one, it's not as bad as you think it is. If you're relatively like in recent, using recent technology, your data is not that bad. Two, clean it up as you bring, as you define it. Don't worry about cleaning it up in the engineering side or the products, just like clean it up as you bring it in. And three, have your tool actually handle some of that for you. So like the duplicate leads, duplicate problems, are handled as you answer the question because there's no way you're going to get 100%. And if you try to build pipelines that assume your data is perfect, you're just going to, it's going to fail. I know this is not directly the domain of narrator, but I got to get your, uh, got to get your take on this one. So uh, what responsibility does a vendor like narrator have for ingesting and making it easier to say uh, extract decisions that involve bias because the bias is encoded in the data. So clearly narrator is just a tool and you're not proactively facilitating that, but you are making it easier to potentially uh, introduce biased decisions into the world. How do you, as a technologist, think about your responsibility? Yeah, great question. So two things, actually, a big two things. One, I do actually think that the tool is responsible for delivering quality work. I think like this is like the biggest vendors like to give you this fucking bullshit, which is like, oh, you just set up our system wrong. You just set it up wrong. No, like if everyone who uses your product sets it up wrong, then your product's not working. Like blame the product. It's not. So at Narrator, like, first of all, everything that happens in Narrator, data never leaves your system. We are within your warehouse, fully transparent, data never leaves your system for security and compliance purposes. So let's talk about now what, how, first of all, how does Narrator evaluate success? Because people love saying shit like, oh, we process a trillion rows of data. I don't care. We have customers that have a trillion rows of data. We have customers that have hundreds of billions of rows. We have customers that have a million rows. What we like to look at is how many analysis did you generate in Narrator? Did you actually act upon? It's the job of Narrator, not just to give you the right answer, 
but also to give you the answer in a way where it's the you're getting the right information at the right time that you act upon it. If I say women convert better than men and your response is cool, like that's useless. Like that's a, that's that I fail that as say as a vendor. I see that's a product failure. The job of the product is to give you stuff that you actually act. And that means there's a lot of work in getting you to believe the answer and know enough so you can take the initiative to act. The analysis has to feel like you created it and it has to give you all the information that you can justify your actions to anyone who asks. That's a much higher bar than it's a tool. You used it, your fault. No, no, no. It's our responsibility to use it correctly. Just like Nero doesn't let you duplicate rows. It doesn't let you create bad visualizations. It actually limits you on so many things because we are holding ourselves responsible that anyone who's reading the analysis can't misinterpret it. That's why every single number you see, you can click on it and get to the raw row level data that makes up that data point so that everyone can validate and fact check every single piece of every single uh, data. It is on the tool to ensure quality, not just like by giving you a best practice list. So that's the first thing. So now let's talk about racist algorithms. I think it's really, really, really critical. And uh, we have alternated back and forth in this thing, which is we have to inform the user. So if you're doing stuff that's like commonly used with like location data, zip code, and you do like how does a zip code impact an action, uh, Narrator will notify you saying, hey, by the way, just FYI, if you use the zip code, it can be, we have a, like a list of things that are like dangerous things to splice by that can be like, hey, this can affect your, uh, can be like a race predictor. But at the same time, we once worked with an HR company. One of our customers is an HR company and they actually help people uh, detect racism in their HR process. And they had run the analysis based on the, based on race, how convert, like how likely are you to convert to get a hire? And narrator was so funny because narrator did actually, it warned you and then it sent you, it did create the report. And it said, the recommendation that narrator made is based on your data. If you want to increase your hiring, get more people of the white race. And narrator explains to you, like, actually, over time, you've consistently been able, every time uh, you had a person from the white race, you've consistently converted a higher rate over the last years. Now, this is an interesting thing because somebody took that analysis and they used it as the motivation to change their process. And because narrator runs that analysis every single week, we got an email saying celebrating when that email received, which said, your race analysis is no longer actionable. It says race is no longer a predictor of higher grades because they were able, narrative is able to kind of, as you're behaving, it's able to kind of see that you're changing and adjust. And because everything is in time, you can see it. So we are, we are warning you. We are being very conscientious of what you can do with race. We also know that sometimes it's actually a good thing that you want to make an impact on. And you have to understand why it's giving you that direction. But again, the point is to give you enough information that you can act upon it. Not just give you like, hey, you have bias, yes or no, that's like not helpful. You need to understand the data at a lot lower level so that you can actually take actions that help your business. And we see stuff like that all the time. So 150 or so episodes we've recorded, many of them about AI ethics, and never has any guest used the term racist algorithm. And the reason that's so notable to me is that it's almost taken as a platitude that the data encodes racism, the algorithm doesn't. And here we have a distinguished algorithm developer labeling algorithms as racist. What is a racist algorithm? Yeah, great question. So I think that this happens all the time in data, which is people love, this is a big in AI, in vendors. If you're a dashboarding company, do you have any responsibility of what data? You're like, I'm just a tool. People love being just a tool. And, when, and like it just happens in the media, Facebook is just a platform and everything is just a this. They used to say that the job of uh, every AI algorithm is to color code and, and order a list. Like that's like literally the end of the day, my professor used to say. And I think that when you think about algorithms, you have to develop them in a world where you, again, you understand that data person who's putting the data in is less sophisticated than the person who understands the algorithm. I know that my algorithm actually can predict race because I can combine three factors. One of the reasons why actually I shy away from using neural networks, uh, a lot of deep learnings, a lot of stuff that's like even allowing people to put like 30 things in a regression is anything that has a hidden layer, you create cross dependencies, especially for behavior, I think is very dangerous. I think behavior needs to be explained. That's why I'm a very big fan of Bayesian uh, approaches for behavior because you can understand exactly why the decision, the, the machine made the decision and based on the probability. 
And if you can actually create a joint probability that is equivalent to another thing, you should be able to detect that. So I think it's responsible for the algorithm to say, hey, we created this like interesting like four combination behavior that tells us these kind of people, it might also turns out like put it like race impacts it. Like I actually would rather have an algorithm take in race and then check amongst the groupings that they're creating to see if their algorithm is actually just creating race as a way to ensure it's not doing that. Use the fact that your algorithm can be racist to code it so that it doesn't is critical. Like these things happen so often when people are answering questions. You do this thing where like uh, a big, another um, one of the vape companies was notoriously known for kind of creating like fruity flavors as like a way to say like, oh, invest in fruity flavors. What they were actually creating was a proxy for age. Like you invented age and you just said target minors. And I think that's an important thing. So you say, hey, I didn't put age inside of my algorithm. No, your algorithm created age. And that's fine because you know what? Your algorithm is understanding behavior. And one of the things that people love saying is, oh, you have no way of doing it. Like I'd rather, like like I said, a narrator, every single thing we do, you can interpret it, read, and we give you the rod, like we click on it and we make it easy for you to say, like, let's like sanity check it. Click here, see some example customers. Like I think the people using these uh, tools are smart. If they see a bunch of sample customers from the group, we'll be like, wait, how come most people are younger than these people? Like make the, it is the tool's responsibility. It is the algorithm's responsibility to ensure people are making the right decision. Stop building an algorithm and saying, oh, you use it the way you want. No. No, it's like, it is your response. And we have that with hardware. I think software gets like this like really secret, like we don't do anything kind of vibe. They're like very protected. Hardware does. And if your car, when Toyota got sued because the brake and the gas were on the same level. So when people got scared, they slammed and they accidentally slammed the gas. Toyota got sued and had to recall the cars because the car was defective. Even though it was a user error every time, the car itself enabled such an easy user error that it became considered defective with software we don't get that i like recently just gave a talk about uh facebook data and like showing that facebook changes its algorithms to like makes itself look better is that considered defective if your input and output are like dynamic like i think that's the point we should have a higher bar of vendors we should have a higher bar of algorithms we should have a higher bar of people building these tools and i think this obfuscation and hiding and like it's the algorithm it's not me no then it's a fail like if, if your algorithm can be racist, then the algorithm sucks. Okay, so let's go back to a couple of things you said. So you, you said something that's fascinating, that narrator, you've encoded some rules to detect or at least to make a recommendation like, hey, you know, you're using zip code and zip code can be, you know, used irresponsibly and make biased decisions. And then you gave another example, like, you know, the, your data could output that you know females are better or sorry males are better coders than females or something like that so first of all i love the example of zip code and maybe kind of a warning saying hey this this has the potential to be used the wrong way but the example of using gender and i mean there's so many appropriate ways gender can be used how in the world do you build software on top of the schema that you've discussed but software to detect that there may be an inappropriate versus an appropriate use of a field, a very innocuous field like gender. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think you should stop the people. Like we don't stop the people if they use zip code to detect it. I think you just have to let them know. Like I don't, I don't personally believe the narrator has a moral ground that it should like I as a developer in there, like I help you make the best decision. I trust your moral judgment. The the thing that I think it's my responsibility is sometimes you don't know and you don't realize it. And that ignorance is what I'm trying to uh, solve for, not for directed use. So like if you use gender, we might, uh, I don't know, I can't tell if you use it or not, but I think some things are like that where we'll just notify you, hey, this has a tendency to do this thing uh, or just be careful. But you still could run the analysis. It just notifies you. And a lot of times you're like, oh yeah, I, I appreciate that, but I know what I'm doing here. I know what I want to answer. And you're like, great, like go ahead. But if you don't know, I think that's the interesting part. Just like with tools, like narrator doesn't let you duplicate. It doesn't let you do a lot of things. And it's not, it doesn't let you do them, not because like it's doing them because it wants to help you make the right decision. Here's an example of like a use case that's not racist or like um, moral, but still I think is a responsibility of the tool. We had a question that somebody came to us and they were like, hey, narrator can't 
answer my question. And we're like, oh, we love these. Like, tell me, what's the question? And they said, I want to know based on when the user, uh, when we launch a class on our like website, how likely is the people to sign up for it? And narrator was like, mm, can't answer it. And he's like, how do, narrator won't let me tie them together. And I told them, and I was like, it's interesting. Like, again, most tools, you can write SQL, you can put whatever you want, you can stitch things that don't make sense. Narrator is not, is not like most tools. We're trying to help you make the best decision. So I'm like, well, how does the, when you launch the class impact the person signing up? And he's like, well, people see it. And I'm like, oh, so when people see the class, so if I launch the class at 4 a.m. and I send an email letting everyone know at 8 a.m., is the 4 a.m. what you care about or when the email is at 8 a.m.? And he's like, 8 a.m. And I was like, great. Well, what if I send the email at 8 a.m., nobody opens it till 9 a.m. and people come to the site and see the class at 9 a.m. And they were like, 9 a.m. And they were like, oh, the question I wanted to ask that I can now easily ask a narrator is when someone first views a class, how likely are they to think? I switched the question to be from the same perspective of the same entity, which is a customer. That is the level I think is a responsibility. So in that case, we're pushing the user. You can't answer this question. Try a different question. It's not about race. It's not about morality. It's not about any of these things, but it is still helping you by trying to guess what you're trying to do. And if you are aware, just inform you so that you can make the best decision instead of the best uh, answer the question that you're actually trying to answer. This is the point. And again, this is the point of data tools. I do hold them, hold my standard. Don't give me like, don't just let me do anything because I might not realize I'm making a mistake. But as a tool builder, you're an expert in data. I hold you to the bar that if you're going to create something that you want people to use, it is its responsibility to help you make better decisions. It's not, it's, it, it's not, it's not the person's responsibility to do that and your tool's responsibility just to be a tool. And I think that's kind of the purpose. Does that make sense in kind of these other cases where it's a lot more like a nice to have? So it's like just helping you when you don't realize that you're making something that that's how you're making a decision. I can live with that explanation. It's a hard problem to solve, but I like the way you approach it. It's very pragmatic. Now, one of the things that we've talked about, whether it's through any of the tools that we've discussed, now including Narrator, is that we're trying to democratize access to data. So you don't need a data science degree. You don't need to be a SQL jockey. Question for you, will there ever be a point in time when, whatever you want to call it, you know, a citizen data analyst or just a citizen can go in and ask questions of data using natural language as good as a SQL expert could today? There's two parts to this question. Your questions are very open-ended. I love them because they have to go into two parts. The first part is democratizing data. I actually think democratizing data is a terrible it, like in, endeavor because what people do is they give you data. Like, so what? You, again, this is the point of my problem that I'm gonna keep emphasizing. You put all the onus on all the work on the person. We are just love giving you tools. It's like if I gave you a 10,000 page report on everything you need to know, like, cool. If I give you a bunch of dashboards that you can easily misinterpret it because they're just a bunch of line plots and you might think that they're tied together when they're not, you will make mistakes. Don't put the onus on the person receiving the data, put the onus. So what we need to do is democratize the ability to answer questions with data. This is a critical difference. It's not about giving you data and let you do whatever you want. I need you to be able to answer the question that you have in your mind with data. For me to, for you to be able to answer the question you have in your mind with data, a bunch of things has to happen. Your questions that you're thinking about in your head are not formulated. They're really bad. Every person, like if you work with a data analyst, you ask your question, there's always this iterative process where you have to refine the question. So we need a way to help you refine the question, step one. Step two, set expectations on is now the refined question what you actually want, then help you make the decision. Three steps need to happen. The challenge with natural language processing is that it does like hides a couple of these problems and it, what it takes is it takes an input, which is a terrible question that is misthought and delivers an output and it's guessing the rest. I think this is bad. This is when computers and humans are really, this is not working together. This is a human being giving bad faulty information to a computer. The computer says, I answer the question. And then the computer, the person makes the wrong decision or guesses something. So I, if you create three things, we've a narrator, we've thought a lot back and forth about natural language. We actually have a prototype for an LP version of narrator. 
And what we realize is that the way you actually get to a question is an area of process and it involves actually seeing data. So we help you structure the question, give you options so you know that you have to make some decisions that you didn't think about when you first asked the question. Like, I, do I want a unique row per person or do I want every time somebody submitted a lead? Oh, I want a unique, give me the first submitted lead and then conversion. So we help you formulate your question and then we show you the data. Before you jump into plots and visualizing and answers, we show you the data because there's this whole thing that happens when you see data is you are much faster in your brain looking at like breakups. We tell you to look at a couple of customer journeys. So you kind of validate that intuition is exactly what you're looking for. And we see so often our users, they come back and refine the question. This process refined the question, refined the question, and then they visualize and then they, and then they run the analysis to interpret the data. So I do think that we're so far from giving NLP, not because of the technology, it's actually a solved problem to do NLP with like uh, questions. It's the fact that the question you're asking is not refined and we need you to find the question. So I'm just anti. And I do think actually the same problem goes with SQL. When you write SQL, it's not that you don't know the SQL syntax. There's a billion new tools that help you click and drag SQL. It's never the SQL syntax that's hard. It's the fact that you can't just join columns and you got to guess things and you got to do all these things. It's never the syntax and the tool. It's the person, they're finding the question and figuring out how to do it. There is a huge hurdle that is like, how do I implement this in SQL uh, for those fuzzy joins, which narrow itself because they're a temporal way. But that's the point. It's these three pieces that you help people. It's not the SQL. It's not just the uh, NLP to code. It's helping the user refine their question, see what they want, build their intuition, make the human smarter, give them the answer. So often when they get the analysis, they actually come up with a second follow-up question. And then they and then it's like four or five questions that are run before somebody actually stops using narrator and then takes the analysis somewhere else. Like that's the point. It's that process. And that's the point that we want to refine. So we get so comfortable talking about AI and job elimination, but I have the opposite question for you. So when data analysis tools like narrator are ubiquitous, wave your magic wand. What are some of the new fields that will be created? So I think. There is so much dedication to the means versus the end that you have lots of gaps. So every single, if you think about it, every single person doing their job has some hypothesis on how to improve it. Whether we, we now have product analytics, we have sales uh, operations, we're beginning into the world of HR analytics is getting very popular. Like you put the analytics in front of any job title and it's now a field. I believe that if you do data correct and like customers that use narrator see this thing is that you can put analytics next to every single job title, warehouse analytics, like, and then that person is asking questions with data to make better decisions. So you actually end up like, instead of just having warehouse managers, you, instead of having one warehouse manager, you might have four because all of them are improving the system at the same time. You might have more people doing product work so that you have more product managers because they're not, their job is not just to manage the pipeline and give their questions to the data team, their job is to actually make better decisions and therefore they're using data. So what you end up seeing is every job expands, engineering analytics, like we talk about this a lot. You know how many bugs narrator catches because we actually use uh, narrator to detect like data catch mistakes. So like, oh, this thing shouldn't have happened based on the data. And then we just automate that into like a literally a narrator say like run this and, and notify me if it changes. And it just like is like a QA test. It's a QA analytics. It's all these things that are using data to make better decisions. And I think right now what we've done is we've kind of created a pipeline and it's a huge pipeline from data engineering to analytics engineers to BI engineers to blah, 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 and all the other job titles. And it's just never enough. You could always hire more, you always need more. And I believe in the world, you actually double invest on each team, give them more analytics capability, and then leverage the data team, which are experts in asking really good questions to do some of the more advanced work and think through more complex problems to help the executive team make decisions. Like in my perfect world, every single org is using narrator to answer questions and, and do better analytics. The data team is actually a partnership with the executive branch because they have preview over all the data and they can ask and, and hypothesize over everything. And they're actually team members of strategy meetings with the executive branch to help guide it. It's kind of like you have a um, every CEO has like a chief of staff Every C, every CEO and every executive, just like they have an assistant, they're going to have a data counterpart, which are, is not someone who just answers your question, 
because you're able to do that yourself with narrator. It's someone who helps you think through questions and ask follow-up questions and work together in strategy. So data becomes so much bigger and more valuable and more actionable and way less of this like kind of like SQL engine that people leverage that's like really just terrible. So being an entrepreneur, it's such an intense and personal journey. And you started off, you studied robotics, you wrote algorithms to launch missiles, manage data infrastructure. But for the last five years, you've been first, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say, first a CEO and an entrepreneur, building a company, getting it venture back. What has that process taught you about yourself? I learned a lot. <laughs> you learn a lot very quickly as a CEO. And you get to rewrite a lot of the common stuff that we know today in a different light. So I discovered one, I'm very bad at communicating. <laughs> and I also discovered that I'm actually like not an ideal CEO, to be honest. I'm like, I still write code every day. I lead product and narrator also, but I'm so bad at communicating product and like creating specs that I actually build everything as a prototype, test it with customers before it goes into engineering. I've learned so many things that like, I have so many shortcomings and like, that's fine. Like, it's so weird that I, that wasn't fine in other jobs where like everyone is responsible for being an incredible communicator and an incredible manager and an incredible individual contributor. And no, like you have a team. So I learned a lot to like rely on more people, uh, bring more people in. I learned a lot about like where good ideas come from. It's like really rarely the, we have this idea like this, product people sit on top and executives come up with like strategies and then everyone implements it. I learned that's just not the way, at least for me, what leads to good quality. Like I get an example I learned by myself today. I, I, I had this idea that I wanted to build something for our analysis uh, builder. And it was so, it was so tempting for me to just go build it. And instead I went in and I said, Oh, I'll pick up a couple of analyses that we're doing. I'll just do a couple of free analyses for some of our customers for fun. And I will actually suffer through using our like an analysis builder today and seeing where do I get frustrated because, and then I talked to a couple of our team and a couple other customers and I got to like really relive it. So I just learned that it like, it's, that's interesting. I also learned that there's no fire. That's not, we've been doing this for five years, relatively small company, we're 11 people. So five years, 11 people, like pretty decent impact on the industry, I would say, but still very small team. And one of the things that I realized is that Every in my in, in like working at WeWork, there was always a fire. Everything was so panicked. We got to get this first. We got to get this. We got to get this. Build more features. Build more features. I learned so much about myself is that like I and the people around me behave better when it's not a fire. So like it's okay for things to get delayed. It's okay that narrator does what it needs to do very, very well. And we don't get distracted by shiny. Like we are very thoughtful. And I feel like if you get to do that, you feel so happy with what you do. And I think somehow with the amount of more work I've added, I've become way less stressed. And that's like an interesting situation to be in where I get to like really, really, really take a moment and like be like, wow, I get to work with some of the most awesome people I've ever met in my life. We solve a problem that I think is changing the world every single day. We have customers that really love us and they tell us how much they love us. We get a chance to rethink what's normal and what's not normal. We can decide things like it is the job of the tool. They're like, like everyone's like, well, why don't you build another tool like this? Why don't you just do something? I'm like, no, I'm going to set ourselves to a higher bar. But no one is doing that. You're never going to beat the competition if you continue setting your goal as better decisions and number of actions taken, not just like how many people are using their product. Build a product that everyone clicks on. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. And I think you forget that all this weird external pressures when you're CEO and you get to kind of protect your team you get to live in a world where you're doing what you think uh, and you and your team think is best and you work with your customers together. And I just feel like all these things have taught me so much about like, just like what causes stress. And it's this, honestly, like I, I look back at this thing and I say, people who are not using, who are not in the ground cause stress for everyone in the ground because they make up decisions that have no idea what people on the ground are experiencing. Like all these, like it's happening at WeWork all the time. All the executives have come up with these ideas and decisions and we need to be mission aligned and driven and horizontally vertical, blah, blah, blah. And they would just add all this extra load on everybody. And like, it just, you don't need that. Like, we don't know why we do that. 
And I think like, because narrator got to kind of spend the time thinking like, why do we do data the way we do it and reinvent it? We got a chance to kind of have that mentality for so many other things. And it turns out like, I, I think I referenced the book by bootcamp, which doesn't have to be so crazy at work. Like it doesn't, it really doesn't. And I love that. And I love I get to kind of feel that level of fulfillment every single day and doing something that's different. And it is hard. And it is really soul, soul crunching when like, you're like, everyone is doing one thing and you're trying to do something different, but you can prove to them you're better. But everyone's like, well, it's not best practice. And you're like, well, we're different. We, you, There's just so much inertia that we have to go against. And everyone's like, why don't you just hop on and say you're part of the modern data stack? And I'm like, no, I think the modern data stack sucks and it should, it's going to die. And I don't want to be part of like a random hype. So I just find that, like, I just found so much more integrity about myself. I got so much less stress. I found happiness and I found just a journey to be on. And I think that like all of us are kind of looking for that. We all just want something that gives us fulfillment and that's worth more than money and time and anything else. So I felt like that's what I learned is that you can get that at work if you do, and you can give that to everyone that you work with. If you don't just like fucking spread fire everywhere. Well, Ahmed, I got to get you off the hot seat, but uh, not without answering one last question. Cause uh, that was beautiful. What you shared about your, your entrepreneurial journey and your philosophy. And I got to say, it's about the polar opposite of what we learn in We Crashed from uh, Adam Newman, from Jared Leto. And uh, you got you to let our listeners know, what's, that, what's the craziest WeWork story that, uh, that we haven't heard just from watching the, uh, the series? Oh, crazy. Okay, so I think that, so I'll give you a crazy positive WeWork story. I think we've given a lot of negative VR stories and WeWork gets a really bad rep. And Adam is like an insane person, but I love him dearly. Adam once rented me out to a company. So here's a story that I was, um, we were working with a nonprofit and one of our employees got cancer and needed a blood marrow transfusion. And Adam was like, what the fuck? How come this process sucks? And they were like, well, it takes us this much time to get data and blah, blah, blah. And he brought me into a room and he said, I'm sending you like to go help this company with their data. And I need you to come back when it's better. And I was like, what do you mean? And uh, I was like, anyway, so long story short, I was like amazed that Adam was willing to put like the company's data needs aside to go help another company uh, with doing solving this blood marrow. So I went there and it was like a disaster, so much bureaucracy, so much bullshit. Like there was so many reasons things can get faster. It was safe, like taking two and a half weeks and we can bring that down. And he was like, okay, we need, to, we, we, I, was, I, was, I was like, I have no power. And he goes, okay. And he invites me to go to a, like a gala fundraiser for this event. And he gets on stage and slowly with like building, builds excitement and getting people to donate more money, more money, more money. And he got the entire crowd just getting so amped about like donating money that he ends up getting like half a million dollars of donations. And then he goes, great, I'm going to donate another million dollars. So he donates another million dollars. And part of that donation was like, he like talks to CEO, like in that donation, like I'm literally helping grow donations for you. I'm showing you that we are committed to you and I'm going to give you a million dollars of my own money, but just remove the blockages. And it ends up being that we ended up were able to take that time. That was two and a half weeks to get a match down to 30 minutes. And it like that, that his using his power of like, and the money that he had and we were positioned to really help another company help find that our uh, people to get matches faster and unblock bureaucracy to solve a really core problem in data is just something that we don't talk about. Like for all the insanity that we work had, we really did believe that we were trying to change the world and we were willing to put our like money where our mouth is and really do things that were really counterintuitive. Yes, there are all the, a lot of other stuff is true too. And there's a lot of insanity and there's a lot more terrible stories, but I decided that for this time, since I've been so different in this whole podcast, I would just share a story where like, I think in that moment, I like really pledged a lot of loyalty to Adam. And I told him like, and Adam was like a very big supporter for me and in, in like a lot of the journeys and like, and I think that moment really shows that like he did think the world, but he also wanted to help and he did help and he did make a lot of differences. And like just remembering like in the world of shiny and loud and noise and tools and things like 
there's like the real story is a lot more nuanced and just like data is a lot more nuanced, just like tools should be a lot more nuanced. And we can't just be in like this world where everything is just answered with just like, ah, it's crazy. Or like these two, it's an algorithm. It's not, it has no, it doesn't make, it doesn't decide what your data is a problem. Your data is messy. Like we can't just be in a world where we just blame everything else and everyone else. There is responsibility for everyone and a lot more things are nuanced. And I think that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about like storytelling and people is that you get to see the nuance. Like narrator was narrator, there's a company is called narrator because I believe the stories and the stories are need to be written in English and they need to be a little bit more detailed. You can't just show a couple plots because there's nuance and that nuance is important. And I think that's my philosophy. Thank you for sharing that. That uh, it's a shame that didn't make it into the script, but the whole <laughs> philosophy and it clearly influenced your thinking around narrator. Uh, Ahmed, we've gone way over time, but I'm glad that we did because uh, this has been such a fun conversation and uh, we could go another hour and have, uh, you know, just, uh, just as much of an interesting chat. Maybe you'll, uh, maybe you'll come back another time and we'll continue. How'd that be? Awesome. Yes. The next time I'll tell you about my Ironman. That'll be a fun, fun story for the next time. Tee that up. That'll be topic <laughs> number one. Uh, where can the audience uh, learn more about you and Narrator? Yeah, our website, Twitter. My Twitter is AE for AI. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, actually. So if you just search my name up on LinkedIn, uh, connect with me, follow me. We'll, I share a lot of content that is helpful. And I'm always, always here to help. So feel free to reach out. We're all rooting for you and, uh, and the team to succeed. Thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out. Thank you so much, Dan. I loved it. Good. Well, there you have it. Uh, Ahmed Al-Samadisi from, uh, from Narrator. That is certainly all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. And of course, we will be back next week with another fascinating guest.